You've stepped into leading a complex situation with an organization that's underperforming. How do you effectively and quickly clarify what's important? Today's guest shares the principles for how he did this as CEO of a Fortune 100 company. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 410. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. One of the challenges that leaders find themselves stepping into is how to assist a team, a division, or in today's case, a very large organization that is underperforming. When you're called upon to be the person that is going to lead the next steps, where do you start? Today's guest is going to help us to answer that question on how to clarify what's important. I am pleased to welcome Ron Williams to the show today. Ron is a veteran business leader, turnaround expert, and advocate for value creation. Today, he is chairman and CEO of RW2 Enterprises, and he currently sits on the boards of directors for American Express, the Boeing Company, and Johnson & Johnson, in addition to many other nonprofit and advisory boards. He's also the former chairman and CEO of health insurance giant Aetna. When he joined Aetna in 2001, its loss from continuing operations was $292 million, with earnings per share at a loss of $0.46. Cents. In 2011, the year he stepped down as chairman, Aetna's full-year operating earnings were $2 billion, with operating earnings per share of $5.17. And he is the author also of the new book, Learning to Lead, The Journey to Leading Yourself, Leading Others, and Leading an Organization. Ron, an incredible story at Aetna. I'm so glad to welcome you to the show. Well, it's a pleasure to meet you, and I look forward to our discussion. There is so much for us to pull from wisdom in your journey as a leader. And I want to ask you about Aetna, of course. Before even Aetna, though, one of the stories that really struck me in the book was a moment where you and Jack Rowe, uh, the CEO who preceded you at Aetna, were in the corporate jet <laughs> flying to an important meeting with America's top CEOs. And you had this exchange about uh, did you ever think that one day you'd be flying on a plane to meet with the top CEOs in the country? And both of you said, never in a million years. What about your story was so unlikely? Well, I was, first off, I'm an African-American executive who grew up in the 60s when there were absolutely no African-Americans in corporate America. The doors began to open and those who entered tended to be in human resources and in areas like community relations. So as a young kid growing up who was working in a car wash, the notion that instead of washing hundreds of cars a day in 10 degree below zero weather, that I would be flying on a corporate jet, meeting America's most important CEOs who are our customers was an absolutely unimaginable event. What was it that was the turning point for you when you realized your career was going to look different than what you had imagined? Well, I think it started for me in the process of 
going to a community college for two years and then moving into a four-year school, Roosevelt, in Chicago, and then ultimately doing graduate study in psychology. And I ended up working in the state of Illinois uh, in a government position, and I was exposed to very senior-level executives. And that opened my eyes to a world I knew absolutely nothing about. Most of these executives had worked in major corporations. They came into the state government for a period of one, two, three years as public service, and then they went back into their corporate careers. And for me, it was an eye-opening experience to understand their journeys and even know the types of positions that existed. And for me, it set me on a path to say, I would like to be able to do the kinds of things that they do. And and I began to learn what path might take me there. As you think back on that time working for the state of Illinois, what's one thing you recall that as you listen to some of those executives and senior government leaders that was new for you that you hadn't considered before? Well, I, I think the things that were new was watching and observing the way that the collaboration occurred, the way the data and the facts were analyzed and presented, and because there was a political dimension to it, how the political aspects factored in. So it was absolutely fascinating to to see this multidimensional experience brought together by experienced business executives, political operators who represented the political part of it, And for me, seeing that world top down was enormously helpful at that stage in in my career. And really, uh, I imagine, set the stage for handling complexity later on, which you certainly uh, had in front of you when you arrived at Aetna. I mentioned a bit about it in the introduction, but I'm wondering if you could frame what Aetna looked like uh, when you showed up in a senior leadership role in 2001. Well, Aetna had a fabulous history. It was a 150-year-old company, but it was a company that had lost its way. It had, in the space of a few short years, completed over $12 billion of acquisitions of, of other companies, had failed to integrate those companies and to create a cohesive culture, philosophy, and administrative technical infrastructure for the running the business basically effectively. It also had turned over the operation of its business to executives who had run much smaller entities it had acquired, who really didn't understand the scale and complexity of running an extremely large organization with 40,000 employees, nor did it understand the requirements of Aetna's highly sophisticated customers who composed about two-thirds of the company's business were Fortune 100 companies. And so that confluence of events resulted in Aetna having business practices that were highly problematic. The company was being sued by physicians all over the country in enormous numbers. All the state medical associations had filed class action lawsuits. Hospital systems were suing them. The company had lost numerous litigation, including a point where there was a $120 million punitive damages suit against the company in California. And the then current CEO indicated that the reason the company lost the suit 
was it was a politically motivated judge, a ambulance chasing attorney, and a weeping widow. Mm. And that was the end of that CEO. So I entered a company that was underlaid, didn't really have a strong focus on customers, and had not built the information systems, analytics, and the operating culture necessary to be effective in a rapidly changing era. I've heard over the years so many stories of leaders who have stepped into very difficult situations. And when I think about your story, Ron, in this situation that emerged in the early 2000s, like the level of complexity and the size of organization of Aetna that you needed to face is really staggering. One of the things that was really insightful for me reading through your story was five questions or five families of questions, rather, I think is the better way to put it, of ways that you've framed how to really clarify what's important and what to do next. And one of the families of questions that you highlight is questions and asking questions as a leader that highlight key problems. When you stepped into the role of CEO, how did that show up? Well, I think when I stepped in, well, and, and let me maybe clarify just a couple of things. One, that when I joined Aetna, I joined and then shortly became president. And the CEO was uh, Jack Rowe, who was a great colleague and, and, and friend. Jack was a physician who really understood the issues around the company rebuilding its reputation with physicians. And Jack was a really wise executive who knew what he didn't know. And he didn't know how to actually run the health plan. And so Jack recruited me, I ultimately then did become chairman and CEO of the company, but we had a great partnership that focused on transforming the culture and turning the business around. Now, one of the things I'd like to stress is that when you're in a troubled situation, particularly where the prior management style was more along the lines of what I call the Attila, the Hun school of management, People were afraid to share bad news. People would not disclose anything that they thought might be viewed unfavorably, and all of that contributed to the problems the company had. One of the things I did to highlight these problems was to use a technique which I found very effective, which is to really try to engage people in a dialogue in which it's about the pursuit of knowledge around the problem. It's about the problem and not the person. One of the things I find is when you ask people, why did you do that? Why did you make that decision? There is an immediate often reaction where people sometimes feel like they're six years old and all they want to do is just get out of the room and not really confront the issue. So I have a way of discussing these things that to talk about Let's discuss the barriers. What are the barriers to our business success? What are the challenges? What are customers telling us? And to take the conversation away from the person and really try to focus on the issues, the methods, our understanding, the assumptions. And I've found that to be much more effective in really getting to the bedrock of what are the real problems. Often there are symptoms that are discussed that aren't the real problem. In the case of Aetna, there were a set of issues where we weren't paying claims timely. We weren't following all the regulations we should have been following. And I summed it up in a headline that said, we have to get back to the basics 
and we have to do the basics well. And we then built a model and a way of communicating that got every department focused on the basics. I'm hearing a key distinction in what you just said of surfacing key problems in starting a question instead with the word why and asking as the first word what. It sounds like that's key in how you've approached those those key situations. I found that that it, it seems like a small thing and I found that the the only setting where why works is when people are really trained in Six Sigma and Lean. They understand the context of the question. But when people aren't trained in that, why is often a very threatening question, particularly when you have high stakes. And quite honestly, the person may very well have been part of the problem that was created. What you now want them to do is let go of that and become part of the solution. And so I find that what are the barriers, what are the challenges, what do we need to do better, are all much more effective than, in essence, asking the person in an unspoken way, why did you screw this up? Mm, it separates the person from the issue, like you said, in their minds, makes it easier for them to talk about something that they may have been involved in some way of creating. Correct. One of the other key things that you advise is asking questions that clarify the facts. And you talk in the book about how you have gained a reputation as a leader, and you did at Aetna, of being very detail-oriented. And you said that, that that isn't necessarily true, that details are important, but perhaps more important is what's insignificant versus what's material. Tell me more about that. Well, I think that's very important. People sometimes can confuse knowing the important facts with knowing all the facts. And the example that I use is if you ask a fact-based question about a particular project schedule issue or complication issue, and the person responsible for that project doesn't know the answer, and this is a project that is essential to the fate of the organization, that's a concern. If, on the other hand, you ask a fact-based question, which is a casual question about a routine matter, and someone doesn't know the answer to it, and they say, gee, I'll get back to you when I look into it, that's just fine. But there's a lot of confusion around figuring out what's important and and what kind of facts are essential to a well-run, well-achieving organization. And so it's really important to make certain you focus on the facts that are material. Now, part of that is creating a culture that spends its, its time on the important and material issues and doesn't get distracted by minor issues that can consume a lot of oxygen and defocus the leadership team. How did you do that, Ron? Because I can only imagine the complexity and the amount of data that was coming at you and decisions on any given day. What did you find that was helpful to you of being able to quickly as an executive surface what was really material versus the things that may be details, but were not as significant for the organization? Well, I I think this is an area where I would credit Jack Rowe as really being uh, very good as a physician. I I remember very early on our working relationship, Jack reminded me that there are endless measurements one can take of the human body, but there are a few that are absolutely essential. What's the blood pressure? What's the pulse rate? What's the temperature? And so it was a reminder that helped us as a team and an organization 
zero in on how many members do we have? What is our revenue? What is our profitability? What is our R&D expenditure? So if you think about six or seven really critical issues in relation to your competitive environment, it's a really good way to isolate the relevant facts. Things around customers. What do customers think of you? For example, what is your net promoter score? Absolutely essential and cuts through a lot of other kinds of things you can spend a lot of time on, but delivers to you the essence of how your customers view you and how your potential prospects view you. One of the other areas that you advise is really important for leaders to be mindful of is asking questions that probe an underlying story. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about some of the terms you mentioned in the book, um, two of them in particular, the term Mother Etna and the term Etna Nice, uh, which both reflected some of the cultural places where the company was as you moved into leadership. Tell me more about that and how did that story emerge culturally and how did it affect how you led? Well, I think what you're describing is is the way the community and the employed population, the staff of Aetna, thought about the organization, thought about its role, thought about its responsibilities to the employees and the employees' responsibilities to Aetna. And so when you hear terms that have a special meaning, kind of an operational definition of sorts, it's very important to understand how that evolved. Why did people think about it? And in the case of Aetna, for example, Mother Aetna went back to the history of the company being located in Hartford between Boston and New York, that in order to attract a labor force that was high quality and and appropriate for what it needed to do, then this went back to the 1930s, 1940s, the, the company adopted a whole set of programs and approaches that was very nurturing, very welcoming, and unfortunately de-emphasized accountability and results. And so people came to expect that you could join Aetna at the beginning of your work career, you could stay there forever, and as long as you just kind of motored along, you might might do just well. That might have worked at one point, but the world changed. And so the company hadn't really contemporized either by communicating to employees a change dynamic or by helping employees understand and embrace that new dynamic. I think one of the things I found when I went to Aetna was I expected to find a lot of incompetent people given the financial challenges the company had. Instead, I found a lot of very highly motivated people who were highly skilled but had been underled. And, and where they had not been communicated to in a way that helped them understand the gravity of the challenges they faced, nor the competitive contextual environment they lived in. When they understood that, they rallied to the success of the organization. What did you and the executive leadership team do to both honor that history and the culture of the workforce, yet at the same time, help to communicate in such a way that really underscored the gravity of the situation the company was in? Well, I think one of the things that we did was as we built the new culture, 
and we updated the values and the behaviors, we started by taking a look at the history of the company. And we assembled teams from across the organization. And those teams would review things like the prior values that were established in the 1930s or established in the early 1900s and would look at each generation so that as we evolved the new set of values and and mission and goals, that we were building on the foundation that others had built before. And we found a lot of very good information there and a lot of very good ideas, which ultimately found their way into what, what we termed was the Aetna Way. And the Aetna Way embodied the mission of the organization, the goals, the values, and most importantly, the behaviors, because we took the values and linked those to behaviors that we expected people to adopt. I love the mention you make in the book of one of the Aetna employees saying to you, Aetna used to be a nice place to work, but now it's a great place to work. And I think it's really interesting how the leadership was able to, and, and you all working together, were able to really reframe the word nice to the word great in a way that honored the past, but also really helped people to make the shifts that were important. I think that's something that we really strive to do. We recognize that employees really want to feel pride in the place that they work. And I, I tell a story that when I, when I joined, if you would go out in the community and you never saw anyone wearing an Aetna sweatshirt or an Aetna t-shirt or, or Aetna hat, and when you, if you went to a party and you met people and you asked them what they did, they often mumbled something like, I work in insurance, and you knew they worked at Aetna. <laughs> but people didn't really want to be affiliated with the way the prior leadership had governed the organization. And so what we found was over time, the pride in Aetna was restored, and that unlocked an enormous amount of discretionary energy that people brought into the organization every day. Another piece of advice you have for leaders around question asking is the importance of asking questions that suggest alternatives. How did that show up for you, Ron, in the early days of leadership at Aetna? Well, I think when people, one of the things I try to do is to get people to imagine a world in which what we may believe is impossible is possible. So the question would be, what would have to change? What alternatives would have to unfold for what we're trying to do to be accomplishable and doable? And that helps you get at some of the unspoken or unarticulated assumptions. Or you may say, if, if we launch this new product, do we believe it will be successful? And people may say, no, I don't believe it will be successful because our customers won't accept it. And then you would say, well, what circumstances would a customer be in or what needs would a customer have to have in order for them to enthusiastically embrace that product. And what you would often find is that their assumptions about what the customer valued was perhaps sometimes dated, sometimes incorrect, but sometimes correct. And it was that kind of alternative scenario building that helped us have some important breakthroughs. I was really fascinated by the use 
and creation of, uh, I don't know if it's your term or the company's term, knowledge maps that emerged during your time at Aetna. Could you tell me more about where those came from and, and what those looked like? Well, they were something I had used before in, in another setting. And it all starts with what I call business literacy. And business literacy says that you may work in the mailroom, you may work on the loading dock, but if you work in any way in the business, you are an important contributor to what we do. The problem is you don't know it. And the knowledge map is designed to give people a easy way to grasp the total context of the competitive environment. Who are they? What are they doing? Who are our customers? What do they value? Where does the money come from? What do we spend it on? And where does it go? And what you find is that in these, this experience of, of going through these knowledge maps, people assembled in teams of 10 around a table. One person might be a vice president of sales. Someone else might work in the mailroom. Someone else might be in underwriting. Someone else might be in another actuarial. So they got together as a team. By the time they all finished the learning maps, they understood where the money came from and what we spent it on. For example, some employees thought that retained earnings were something the executives took home and put in their pocket. They didn't understand that we had to set aside money to invest in the business. They didn't understand that when a shareholder bought a share, we had to give them a return that was greater than what they would expect to get in a bank because they were taking the risk that our business might do well or might not do well. So business literacy turned out to be an extremely important process. Again, it's all about building pride. It's all about building engagement. And it's about giving people the ability to better understand the overall aspects of the business, which really enables them to make better decisions. I, I can only imagine in a business as complex as insurance, like how difficult that would be, that literacy in creating the language. And one of the things that I really love that you did with those knowledge maps is that uh, as after the teams put them together, I don't know if you sent, did this internally or sent them out, but they emerged as these these beautiful images, pictures uh, that were custom created and then were shared with the organization to visualize it's simple enough visually that you can really appreciate the complexity, at least the key parts of the complexity of the organization. Well, yeah, it, it, in a lot of ways, it's like a graphic novel is, is the way that I think about it. And one of the things that it was really important about it is it forced us to have great clarity about what our strategy was and to be able to communicate it. One of the things that I think executives often underappreciate is it's not enough to know what you know. It's important to make it accessible to others. And what the, the knowledge maps did was make the points of view, the strategy, the customer-based knowledge, the competitive dynamic, that people who spent all their time understanding those things, it took that and made it accessible to every employee in the organization. And so making what you know accessible is an extremely important attribute that's often underlooked. If you know it and you say it, you think people understand it. Just because you say it doesn't mean they understand it. And it leads right into one of the other mantras you have, which is asking questions that drill down to 
the basics. And it, it was interesting that one of those key questions that emerged in your tenure at Aetna was the question, who's the customer? Which it should be a simple question, right? But there's a lot of nuance, especially in an insurance company. How did you approach starting to answer that question? Well, I, I think that turned out as simple as it is to be one of the biggest challenges that we faced because healthcare, because both of the third party reimbursement system where one person pays the, the, the vast majority of the cost, but someone else pays a portion of the cost, that same person who's paying a fairly small portion is also the person who is consuming the service and receiving the service. And then you have a whole host of what I'll call business partners that are essential to the fulfillment of the promises and commitments that the organization makes. So we had endless discussions about who is the customer. And I think we concluded that patients were really at the top of the, of the hierarchy of customers. But we soon hit upon something that turned out to be extremely important, which is to redefine customer out of the context of a financial relationship and to say that the customer is whoever receives the output of what you do. So if you are in underwriting and the sales team is counting on getting the proposal, they are your customer. If you are in human resources and the employee is counting on getting certain training and information, they are your customer. If you are a what we called a network contracting person working with doctors and hospitals and, and providing information to them, they are your customers. All of these we owe to customer-like obligations so that in the end, the end customer, the patient, was really getting the optimum level of service and support. It's fascinating how zeroing in on a key question like that, that you know, I think a lot of organizations would think is one they've already answered, for you all really surfaced so many of the stakeholders and also the values of the organization of really addressing the most important customer, the patient. And, and clearly the results <laughs> demonstrate how well you all did that, of making that a clear priority. And I think in today's world, the multi-stakeholder dimension of businesses, whether you are a for-profit business or a non-profit organization, the multi-stakeholder dimension is just ever more important. And it's something that leaders have to really understand that they are responsible for. Ron, I know you have a passion for leaders making themselves better each year. What do you teach leaders when you're coaching, when you're speaking about how to do that well? Well, I start with really two things. The first one is to make a real serious and personal commitment that you are going to be, the number I use is 15% better this year than you were last year. Now, people say, why 15%? It's kind of hard to do in perpetuity. But the notion is that you can convince yourself that you can be 5% better. It's really easy to do that. But can you convince yourself that you're going to be 15% better without really thinking deeply about what do you need to be better at? 
And that leads to the second critical point, which is self-awareness. And that to be self-aware, you have to both be highly observant, but you also need feedback. And so you have to have a team who is open and able and understands their role in helping you be better. And so I think one of the things that I encourage executives to do is to always close every session they have with their team by saying, if you're having your one-on-one, you've been through all the business issues, what can I do better to make this a better place for the organization, for employees, to be more effective as an executive, and to do better for our customers? That self-awareness helps you identify the things where that 15% can be extremely important. And the same applies in your personal life. Leaders are always learning and growing. And of course, as you mentioned, that 15% challenges us all to think new ways. As you've led on boards now, Ron, and become a teacher for other executives, what have you changed your mind on in the last few years? I think one of the things that writing the book helped me most understand is leaders have to choose a leadership style and approach. I started out believing that the only way to achieve a high-performance organization was to have a values-based organization. And as I did research and talked to colleagues across the country and in, in other countries, it became clear that organizations can be high-performing based on fear. They can be high-performing based on monetary rewards. They can be high-performing based on lots of things. But the leader has to really think deeply about what kind of culture, what kind of organization do they want to have. Personally, I wanted to be in an organization that was based in values, that had a clear and elevating goal, that was about having a vision and a set of goals that people could come to work every day and say, I am making the world a better place by what I'm doing. Yes, we're making money because we need that in order to keep doing it. And so to me, that was one of the things I changed my mind on was starting out not with there's one way to do it, but starting out with the recognition that the leader really has to make a conscious choice of how they want to lead. Ron Williams, former CEO of Aetna, the author of Learning to Lead, The Journey to Leading Yourself, Leading Others, and Leading an Organization. Ron, thanks so much for your wisdom and also your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Several related episodes to today's conversation. First, I'd recommend episode 267, The Way to Grow Your Leadership Career. My guest on that episode was Ron Wallace, the former president of UPS International. Ron talked in detail about his own career journey at UPS, and I think it's a wonderful compliment to today's conversation with Ron Williams. Uh, Both of them have been at the highest levels of leadership at some of the largest organizations, and both the strategy uh, conversation you heard today in identifying what's important, and also the career growth conversation with Ron Wallace back on episode 267, I think will be especially useful to those of you, uh, particularly if you're in larger organizations. That's a wonderful resource for you to be thinking about career development, and what's next. I'd also recommend episode 316, Executive Presence with Your Elevator Speech with my friend Tom Henschel. Uh, One of the things you may have noticed about Ron is just how clear and concise he is in his communication. It is a 
hallmark of executive presence and executive leadership. If you, like me, are always working on becoming more clear and concise in your conversations, Tom Henschel has a great call to action for us in episode 316 and how to do that well using something we've traditionally thought of as, well, an elevator speech, but actually we go way beyond just the traditional quote-unquote elevator speech in that episode. Uh, the you know How do I get out the right things to say in 30 seconds on the enter- elevator? Uh, really, that episode isn't about that. It's about how do I engage in a conversation that's clear and concise, and you'll hear that distinction very clearly in episode 316. And finally, I'd recommend episode 350, How to Create an Unstoppable Culture with Ginger Hardage. Ginger is the former senior vice president of culture at Southwest Airlines. And on that episode, she talked about how Southwest as an organization over the years has created this incredible culture that they are known for in serving customers well and having enthusiasm for their work, and also what she and her leadership team did in order to not only to influence the creation of that culture, but perhaps more importantly, to support the growth of that culture within the organization, a culture that has become known worldwide for supporting the success of their organization. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. And if you haven't already, you're going to want to set up your free membership right on the homepage of the website. When you do, once you log in, you will have access to the full membership panel with all of the resources that'll help you in your leadership development, including full access to every episode we've aired since 2011 tagged by topic so you can track down the other episodes on executive presence, organizational change, and strategy as this episode is under those topic areas. So many more conversations that we've had over the years on all of those topics. In addition, once you get access, you'll have full access to my book notes, uh, including the notes from Ron's book today, uh, all of the things that caught my attention that I think will be valuable for you to review. You can download those inside the membership portal under book notes, plus access to my personal library, the weekly leadership guide, the free audio course, and a whole bunch more inside the membership portal. So if you're not on there yet, you're missing out on all those resources and it's newly designed. So it's even easier to get around than it was before. Go over to coachingforleaders.com, activate your free membership. And when you do, you'll get access to everything right away. Thank you so much for listening. If this conversation was useful to you, pass it along to someone else who would benefit from hearing about how to clarify what's important. Have a great week and I'll see you back next Monday. Take care, everyone.